Well, the book of Revelation is filled with incredibly engaging and interesting passages. And this is certainly one of them that we're in tonight. We're, we're in a section where Jesus dictated seven letters to seven different churches. Now, these letters to the different churches are meaningful on so many different levels. First of all, they're meaningful just on the fact that there were seven historical churches and Jesus wanted to speak to each church in its historical setting and have something to say to those Christians at that time that that would speak to their need and and move them on to where the Lord wanted them to be. It also has much greater meaning as well. Many people, and we'll discuss this in future weeks, see in this passage a panorama of church history, not in rigidly defined uh, parameters, but in sort of sections that somewhat overlap each other through the centuries. And we'll talk about that in coming weeks. But certainly we have an engaging, engaging passage before us tonight. Tonight we're going to consider the second and the third churches that Jesus addresses. The first one we considered last week in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the church at Ephesus. Now tonight we begin with taking a look at Jesus' letter to the church at the city of Smyrna. Let's read the whole letter, verses 8 through 11, and then go through and take it apart, phrase by phrase. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. You fire up your computer, and you log on to your internet account, and you... Punch the thing that says check your email, and the email downloads in, and you go and you see that there's a letter in there for you from Jesus. Wow, that's pretty interesting. So you click on it and you read it. It says to the angel of the church at Smyrna. And this is how he speaks to you. I mean, what if he wrote this letter to you? You know, he did write it to you. How can you tell? Do the check right here. See if you have an ear. <laughs> or see if you have two for that matter. Because verse 11 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Of course, it's not merely the physical ear that Jesus was speaking of. It's the spiritual ear, right? God has something to say to you tonight through this letter that was written to the church at Smyrna. He has something to communicate to you, but you have to have an ear that will listen to it. It's always amazing how... Two people can come and sit down and and read the same passage of the Bible or hear the same message, and one can go away blessed and the other one can go away with nothing. It's not because there was a difference in the word that was preached. It was the same thing that they both heard. It was because one had ears to hear and the other one didn't. Well, you're already way more than halfway here because your ears are here tonight. I mean, that's a big deal. You've come out here this evening to hear the word of God. So let's see what it has to say here. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. Now, the city of Smyrna was a large, beautiful, and proud city. It was a center of learning and culture. And he had one of the great libraries of the ancient world. The great library at Smyrna had more than 200,000 volumes. Smyrna was an outstandingly beautiful city. It was also a rich city. We know from secular history that Smyrna was a great trade city, and it stood at the end of the road which served the valley of the river Hermas, and all the trade of that valley flowed through and came out at that city. In other words, it was a vibrant place with merchants and traders and buyers and sellers, and it was a city of wealth and commercial greatness. This was a wealthy, prestigious, economic powerhouse of a city. We also know from history that it was a city deeply committed to idolatry, to the worship of the Roman emperor. There was one famous uh, street in Smyrna called the Golden Street. 
And on that street stood magnificent temples to uh, Sibyl, to Apollo, to Asclepios, to Aphrodite. And then the greatest temple of all in that city was a tremendous temple to Zeus. But the worship of those pagan gods was dying out in the days of the New Testament. Did you know that? In those days, there wasn't such a fervor for the worship of Zeus or Apollos, or Aphrodite. Oh, of course, they always had their adherents, but those, those were not the happening religions. The happening religions were things like the Gnostic faiths, or especially, the focus was upon the worship of the Roman emperor. Now, it's a curious thing to worship the Roman emperor, don't you think? And we almost want to stand back and almost cluck our tongues and say, well, those stupid people, how could you worship a, a political figure? And then you think in our own century, how in the nations of, let's say, the Soviet Union or in communist China, how it would be a virtual worship of the political leaders in those nations to where in virtually every room uh, or every room where people gathered at least, what would there be? There'd be a picture of the political leader up there. On every dashboard of a card, a picture of a political leader. It's not so strange when we really think about it especially when we consider how it progressed in the ancient world. Some 200 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, the, the city of Smyrna built the first temple to something called Dea Roma, that is the goddess of Rome, who, which was the spiritual symbol of the Roman Empire. It would be sort of like building a temple today to the, the Statue of Liberty or to Lady Columbia, you know, just the symbol of America. This was a symbol of Rome. But once you start worshiping the spirit of Rome, it's not much of a step to start worshiping the dead emperors of Rome. And this is what they did first. They went from worshiping the spirit of Rome to worshiping the dead emperors of Rome. And then once you start worshiping the dead emperors of Rome, well, why not beat the rush? Start worshiping them while they're alive. And they began to conduct emperor worship not only because it was a, a thing that people liked to get into back then, but also especially because it was evidence of political allegiance and civic pride. Every day in classrooms across this country, students stand up, put their hand over their heart, and they say the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Well, the ancient Romans saw emperor worship as sort of a pledge of allegiance to the Roman state. I mean, the, the Roman Empire covered nations and languages and ethnic groups and all diverse kind of peoples. It, it covered a huge, huge geographic area. What could you use to tie together those people into a common bond? You could rally them around the emperor. And you could demand allegiance and worship to the Roman emperor. In the year 23 AD, Smyrna won the privilege over 11 other cities to build the first temple to worship Emperor Tiberius Caesar. Smyrna was a leading city in the Roman cult of emperor worship. Now, in the days of Jesus, the Roman emperors did not demand worship as God. But by the time John the Apostle wrote, towards the end of the first century, the Roman emperor Domitian was the first to demand worship under the title Lord from the people of the Roman Empire as a test of political loyalty. And according to ancient church history, it was under the reign of Domitian that John was banished to the island of Patmos, from where he wrote the book of Revelation. William Barclay has a wonderful section in one of his books on this passage of Scripture. He says, Emperor worship had begun as a spontaneous demonstration of gratitude to Rome. But towards the end of the first century, in the days of Domitian, the final step was taken, and Caesar worship became compulsory. Once a year, the Roman citizen had to burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar. And having done so, he was given a certificate to guarantee that he had performed this religious duty. So in the days that John wrote, in the days that Smyrna would first receive this letter, every Roman citizen was required to appear before the magistrate once a year. And you'd go into a room and there would be a statue or, or at least a, a bust of, of the, the Caesar. And you'd have to go and take a pinch of incense and put it on some hot coals in front of that and the fragrant smoke would rise up and you'd say, Caesar is Lord. 
And then the officials would notice it. They'd write down and they'd give you a certificate says that that so-and-so came in on such and such day and gave his oath of allegiance saying Caesar is Lord. Now, the Romans did not care if you went out and worshiped Jesus as soon as you uh, burnt that pinch of incense to Caesar. They didn't care. The Romans were broad-minded when it came to that. You could worship Jesus. You could worship Apollos. You could worship Zeus. What did they care? But you had to worship, as a test of your allegiance to Rome, the emperor himself. Well, my friends, this is one thing Christians would not do. Christians would not burn that pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. That they wouldn't receive their certificate and go away and then go out and worship Jesus as they pleased. They would give no man the name Lord. That name they kept for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Matter of fact, there was a great debate in the days of the early church because you can imagine it wasn't long before you could go into that room where there's the little statue to Caesar, right? And, And there's the official. And instead of burning a pinch of incense to Caesar and saying Caesar is Lord, you just whip out your wallet and lay down a few thousand dollars to the official and say, here, give me one of those certificates. Now, could Christians do that? Well, some thought, sure, why not? I mean, I'm not saying Caesar is Lord. I'm not burning the pinch of incense. But the other one said, well, what do you mean? You got a certificate that says you did. That's just as bad. And they decided, no, even as Christians, we can't do that. So this was the kind of spiritual environment that was the city of Smyrna. Now, if you notice that the second half of verse 8, Jesus describes himself to the church at Smyrna. You know, the way we describe ourselves has a lot to do with, with how we either see ourselves or want others to see us. I suppose the most extreme and perhaps grotesque example of this is the way people write personal ads in today's uh, classified sections of magazines and newspapers. You know, they write of themselves in the most glowing, wonderful terms and such, and it isn't necessarily that that's what they are, but that that's how they want other people to perceive them. Well, we know that with our Lord Jesus Christ, there's no difference between how he is and how he wants to be perceived. But yet Jesus is an amazing, amazing Lord God of ours who possesses hundreds of titles. I mean, he's no one thing. And so which of the titles he uses to present himself to a particular church says something. So notice how he presents himself. Notice how he describes himself to the church at Smyrna. Verse 8, These things says the first and the last who was dead and who came to life. First of all, Jesus describes himself as the first and the last. Jesus chose this title from his initial appearance to John, that was back in Revelation chapter 1, and he chose it to speak of his eternal character. The first and the last are titles that belong only to the Lord, to Yahweh himself. You could go back to the pages of Isaiah, chapter 41, chapter 46, excuse me, chapter 44 and chapter 48. And see in those places where the first and the last are titles that the Lord God, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, takes unto himself. Can I tell you something? There can only be one first and there can only be one last. And so if Jesus says he is the first and the last, then he is Yahweh. He is the Lord God. So the first title of himself expresses his timelessness, his his strength, his sovereignty. But then notice the next title, verse 8 who was dead and came to life. Now Jesus chose this title from his initial appearance to John to remind the Christians in Smyrna that they serve a risen Lord who's victorious over death. Death could not hold Jesus. And if it could not hold Jesus, then it can't hold his people either. You know, this association with death and the ultimate victory of resurrection, it's sprinkled throughout this letter to the church at Smyrna. Matter of fact, the name Smyrna comes from the word myrrh which was a sweet-smelling perfume used to embalm dead bodies. Even the name itself speaks of death. So what does Jesus know about these Christians in Smyrna? Well, that's in verse 9. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus says he knows the works of the church at Smyrna. Now, he also knew the works of the church at Ephesus. That was in chapter 2, verse 2. But in Smyrna, Jesus knew there, look at it in verse 9, your works, tribulation, and poverty. Now, Jesus knows those things. 
Can I tell you, Jesus knows those things in two senses. First of all, he knows them in the sense that he personally experienced them. Look at those things. Verse 9, works, tribulation, and poverty. Did not Jesus Christ at one time or another in his life experience every one of those three? You better know he did. But as well, Jesus knows them in the sense that he knows what is happening to the church. He's there. He sees it. And I think we're struck by the phrase there in verse 9 where it says, I know your works, your tribulation, and your poverty. You see, according to history, Smyrna was a very prosperous city. Yet the Christians there were poor. And friends, they weren't just a little bit poor. The specific Greek word there used, translated for poverty, is the word for abject poverty. These aren't people who, you know, are a little far down on the financial ladder. These aren't people with some high credit card debt. These are people who don't have anything. Now, the Christians of Smyrna knew poverty because they were robbed and they were fired from jobs in persecution for the sake of the gospel. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34 tells us this. It tells us that early Christians joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods, knowing that they had an enduring, an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. That was one of the ways that they persecuted Christians in the early church. Matter of fact, that same kind of persecution goes on today. You're a Christian? We won't kill you. We'll just fire you from your job. You don't have a job to work. And you can't get a job. There you go. You're a Christian? Fine. We'll confiscate everything you own. We'll just back up a truck and take it all away. You're a Christian? Great. Then we'll take all your assets, and matter of fact, we'll charge you a Christian tax. That's been done throughout history. You see, a lot of the persecution that comes against Christians in times of persecution, it isn't just physical torture. A lot of times it's economic persecution. And as a result of this, these Christians of Smyrna knew poverty. But that wasn't all. If you look at it again in verse 9, it also says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, and are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus knew the abuse these Christians endured at the hand of religious men, those who said they were Jews but were not really Jews. Oh, they might have been of the Jewish uh, persuasion ethnically. They might have been from that extraction in their ethnicity, but they weren't really followers of God. And Jesus says again and again in verse 9, I know, I know. You know, in the midst of real affliction, in the midst of real tribulation, it's easy to think that God has forgotten, right? But he hasn't. Jesus says, I know, I know. Now look at it here. What does Jesus think about this church in Smyrna? Well, really, it's sort of tucked away in verse 9. Do you see in the parentheses there in verse 9? He says, but you are rich. That's Jesus' verdict. That's what he thinks about this church in Smyrna. He looks at them and he says, you're rich. Now that would have come as a surprise to the Christians in Smyrna. They say, what are you talking about? We can barely put food on the table. We're hanging on by our fingernails financially. Jesus, yet you say we're rich. Every outward circumstance said that the Christians in Smyrna were poor, even destitute. But Jesus saw through the circumstances to see that they were really rich. And might I say is that rich is what Jesus thought of them. And if Jesus considered them rich, then they're rich. You know, our estimation of ourself is far less important than what Jesus thinks of us. You've come here tonight with a self-image, with a self-impression. You know, you think of who you are and how you stand, and I don't know, maybe your self-impression tonight is too high. Maybe you think too highly of yourself. Maybe your self-impression is too low. Maybe you think too low of yourself. I don't know, it could err on one side or the other. I'm here to tell you tonight, it just doesn't really matter all that much. What really matters is what Jesus thinks of you. Do you know what Jesus thinks of you? If you read the Bible, he'll tell you. Go ahead and read the Bible. Read some chapters, say, from the book of Ephesians tomorrow, and read it just with this mind. Say, Lord, tell me what you think of me. The Lord will show you marvelous things. He'll show you all that he thinks of you. He looked at these Christians and he said, you're rich. Now, there's an amazing contrast that we're going to see in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, when Jesus writes to the church at Laodicea. The Christians at Laodicea thought they were rich, but they were really poor. Now, here, the Christians at Smyrna think they're poor, but they're really rich. Laodicea was a poor, rich church. Smyrna was a rich, poor church. And I think it's better to be a rich, poor church than a poor, rich church, don't you think? Now, notice this. He 
really paints a contrast here in verse 9. He says, I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. There's a contrast here between material poverty and spiritual riches. These, these words of Jesus to the Christians in Smyrna remind us that there's nothing inherently spiritual in being materially rich. You can be materially rich and spiritually poor. On the same hand, you can be materially poor and spiritually rich. Friends, let's remind ourselves of a couple of things. First of all, there's nothing inherently spiritual in poverty. Just as wrong as it is for us to think that there's something more spiritual about being rich, we know that that's not true, right? But neither is there anything inherently more spiritual in being poor. If you think that the poor are less greedy than the rich, you haven't been around very many poor people. Sometimes the poor are far more greedy than the rich. Sometimes the poor are far more materially focused. Not always, but oftentimes it's the case. It's the attitude of heart that really matters. But friends, let's not kid ourselves. Material riches are an obstacle to the kingdom of God. And they're an obstacle that not everybody overcomes. Jesus said that it was hard for the rich man to get into heaven. Of course, it's possible with God. There's nothing wrong with having money. The trouble is is that money so easily has us instead. Oftentimes, material riches are acquired and maintained at the expense of true spiritual riches. There's an old story, probably a legend, but if it is, it's a good one. That in the glorious days of the Renaissance papacy where you know, these great cathedrals in the Vatican and the Sistine Chapel and beautiful sculptures and paintings and carvings all over the place. And, and a poor monk came to visit the Pope. And as they walked through the beautiful, the beautiful cathedrals at the Vatican, the Pope showed this poor monk all the riches, all the incredible riches. And the Pope proudly told the monk, he said, you know, we no longer have to tell the world what Peter told the lame man. Peter told the lame man, silver and gold have I none. The monk replied, but neither can you say, rise up and walk. And it's true. Oftentimes material riches are either acquired or maintained at the expense of spiritual riches. Might I say that the riches of the church at at, uh, Smyrna were also in their leadership. It, It was a church rich in leadership. One of the pastors of that church was a very famous man in church history named Polycarp. He was one of the Apostle John's disciples, and he served at Smyrna until the year 155 A.D., when he died heroically as a martyr. Now, what words does Jesus have for this uh, church at Smyrna? Look at verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days." Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, Jesus says to them, do not fear. Literally, this could better be translated, stop being afraid. The Christians in Smyrna suffered under persecution, and they were afraid. I think that's one of the dynamics about a time of persecution that's very difficult for us who have not really lived under true persecution to understand. We don't understand the real attitude of fear that permeates Christians in that time. Fear when you gather together as a group that there might be an informant among you. And you're not all that happy to see that new person walk in the church, are you? I mean, the the visiting committee is pretty shaky at that time. You wonder if that person is an informant, if they're going to turn you all in. Or maybe one of your members who's strong today, tomorrow is going to backslide and under some financial incentive or, or something else, he'll betray you all. Or maybe you're not even worried for yourself, but you're worried on the behalf of your family or your children. There's a tremendous amount of fear and stress and pressure that accompanies times of persecution. And sometimes we think that Christians who endure persecution are almost superhuman. And we don't appreciate the depths of fear that they struggle with. But there were things which they were about to suffer, and Jesus wanted them ready to stand against those things. And what was going to happen? Look at verse 10. He says, Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Here, Jesus describes the nature of the persecution that would come against the Christians in Smyrna. Now, at first glance, you look at that and say, Well, that's not so bad. They're just going to get thrown in jail ten days in the pokey. How bad could that be? <laughs> well, friends, it, it, it's bad. First of all, it's bad because of the source. Where's it coming from? From the devil. 
This persecution was about to come, from the Christ, come against the Christians in Smyrna from the devil. Now, at the same time, let, let's see, this persecution was measured and limited by God himself. Don't you think that Satan wanted to put them in jail for more than 10 days? But God says, no, I'm going to limit it. We also have to understand that being thrown into prison was severe persecution. Why? Because in that day, prison was never really used to rehabilitate someone, and it was rarely used to punish someone. Basically, you were in prison awaiting trial. Because after your trial, you were either set free or executed. That's pretty much it. And so you're in prison awaiting trial. And when that trial comes, well, it's going to be decided one way or the other. So friends, for a man to become a Christian in that day and age, in that city of Smyrna, that that was to become an outlaw. And in Smyrna, above almost all places, for a man to enter the Christian church was for him to take his life in his own hands. Friends, the church in Smyrna was a place for heroes. You had to be a hero. You had to have the courage of a hero. Now, this tribulation that they were going to have, they were going to have it ten days. If you notice there in verse 10. Commentators on the book of Revelation have long debated the meaning of these ten days. Some people think that John really means ten years of persecution because people can't resist assigning a year for a day when it comes to biblical prophecy, and I just don't understand it, but people love to do it, and so they think he really means ten years. I don't get it. Other people think that John really means persecution over the reign of ten Roman emperors. Now, if it's funny to say a year, a day equals a year, I think it's even funnier to say a day equals an emperor. I don't get it. But they'll list the first, second, third, the, the ten emperors under which Christians face persecution. Still others take even stranger approaches. Let me read to you from one commentator. He says, Others observe that in ten days are 240 hours, which make up the number of years from the year 85, when the second persecution began, under which John was at at this time, to the year 325 when all persecution ceased. So there you're taking days and converting it to hours and then assigning it to years. It just gives me all a headache. <laughs> Ten days either means one of two things. Either it means, drum roll please, 10 days. Or it is possible that 10 days was an expression of speech. One noted Greek commentator, William Barclay, says this. He says, the expression 10 days is not to be taken literally. It's the normal Greek expression for a short time. Now, let me just give you an illustration of how we understand the Bible with a phrase like this. We understand the Bible literally. And that means according to its literary context. In other words, sometimes the Bible uses figures of speech. And when it uses figures of speech, we recognize them as such. There's a passage I like to quote in this regard. It's in the book of Psalms where David says, I cried all night and I made my bed swim with tears. He doesn't mean that he actually cried so much that he flooded the room and he floated his bed in his room. You get the point, don't you? He's speaking in, in poetic language, in figurative speech, and we understand that. Now, in the same way, it's possible that sometimes in the Bible, when we see a phrase, it's really an ancient expression of speech that we don't have anymore, that we don't translate into our own language. You know, every language, every culture has its own idioms, has its own phrases, so it's possible that 10 days here just means a, a, a limited time. That's possible, a short time, a limited time. Or it may be 10 literal days, but forget about all those things that try to assign a day to a year or a year to a day or the hours in the day to years or... Well, that's just all too confusing, isn't it? But let's look at the real point of this here in verse 10. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Now, let me ask you a question. If this attack came from the devil, why couldn't these Christians in Smyrna just stand back and rebuke Satan and stop the attack? Why couldn't they just say, we rebuke you, Satan? You're not throwing any of us into prison. That's all there is to it. You know why? Because God allowed it. 
God had a purpose in their suffering, and so he allowed it. Do you understand, friends, that God uses suffering? He uses it to purify us. He uses it to make us like Jesus. And he uses it to make us truly witnesses of him. In all ages, it's the blood of the martyrs that has been seed for the church. Right now, one of the most rapidly growing places in in this earth where where Christianity is growing is is in the nation of China. And it's grown because of tremendous persecution that has come against the church there. Not only now, it seems that the persecution isn't quite as bad now as it has been in previous uh, years, but it's there now and in previous generations, it's been terrible. But the church grew dramatically, even under the worst persecution. You see, because God uses the devil's best shot, and then he uses it against the devil himself. God loves to do that. I mean, you want the ultimate example, he did it at the cross, right? Take your best shot, and Jesus used it against him. There's a dramatic example of how he did it in uh, China as well. You see, in the early days of the Chinese Revolution, they were very frustrated by the Christians and all the work they were doing in evangelizing in China. And they said, listen, we've got to do something against these Christians. What are we going to do? And so at some Communist Party political meeting, they got all the experts together. Well, what are we going to do? And they said, listen, I don't know much about these Christians, but I know one thing. They love to hang out together. And so you know what we should do? We should split these Christians up. We should take a group of 100 Christians and we should split them up and send them all over the country. That's what we'll do. And they did it. And so they helped evangelize the whole nation of China. God knows what he's doing. Friends, do you understand something? The saints at Smyrna had not been given a pep talk on how to win friends and influence people. They didn't have a testimony that said, how faith made me the mayor of Smyrna. They were not promised deliverance from tribulation, from poverty, or from persecution. No, friends, do you understand what Jesus is telling them in verse 10? He's telling them, the worst is yet to come. I know you've had it bad. Friends, I'll be straight with you, Jesus says, the worst is yet to come. And God allowed this attack so that they would be tested. Now, why? Was it because God didn't know what was in them? No, God knew what was in them, but they didn't know what was in them. And angels and demons looking on didn't know what was in them, but God would display it. God is interested in testing us also. Look at what he says here in verse 10. He says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What Jesus says to this church is important, but what he doesn't say is also important. Do you understand that in this whole letter to the church at Smyrna, Jesus does not have a single word of rebuke. He doesn't correct them on any point. All he has is the promise of a crown and the encouragement to be faithful until death, which is literally become faithful unto death. He says, I'll give you the crown. Now, there were two words for a crown in the ancient Greek language. One of them was the crown that would sit on the head of a king. The other one was a crown that would be given for a victory or a special celebration. For example, it would be given to an Olympic athlete. You've seen that where the Olympic athletes wear the crown of of, uh, leaves on their head. Well, that was this kind of crown. And Jesus says, you're my winners. You're my champions. I'm going to give you this crown of life. But the... Stephanos, that's what the name of this crown was. It was also a crown that was worn at marriages and special celebrations. Usually when they had a a wedding, the bride and the groom would come in both wearing these crowns. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Jesus and his bride, each wearing crowns, being united together. Friends, Jesus promises them a crown and a crown of life. Now look at here, he promises an exhortation to everybody who hears, verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, the the Spirit has something to say to us through every one of the churches. But, But I wonder if this is not the letter that is least relevant to modern Western Christians. At this point, we simply don't face the kind of persecution that the Christians in in Smyrna experienced. For the most part, the only kind of persecution we face is social rejection, social scorn. And that can be very severe at times. That can hurt. That can sting. But it's really nothing compared to to going all the way and laying down your life for Jesus Christ. You know, there's a very notable example of, of this courageous martyrdom in the early church. And it was the guy who was the pastor of this church in Smyrna. 
His name was Polycarp. Polycarp came back to Smyrna from a visit at Rome. And when he did, a great persecution came upon the Christians of Smyrna. His congregation urged him to leave the city until the threat blew over. And Polycarp figured that God wanted him around a few more years, so he said, okay. And he went out of town and he lived on a farm. He just kind of hid out there and, and that's where he lived. Now, one day he lived on this farm and as he was praying in his room, he had a vision of a, of a pillow. And the pillow that his head was lying on in this vision was suddenly engulfed in flames. And Polycarp felt that God was speaking to him through that vision and what God said was that you are going to be burnt at the stake. Now, Meanwhile, the chief of police issued an arrest warrant for Polycarp. And they seized one of Polycarp's servants and they tortured him until he revealed where Polycarp was. So towards evening time, the police and a band of soldiers came and, and they arrived at the old farmhouse. And when the soldiers came and when they saw Polycarp, they were embarrassed. This was an old, frail man. And you had a whole detachment of soldiers there to arrest him. But they reluctantly put him on a donkey and they walked him and the donkey back to the city of Smyrna. Now on the way there, while Polycarp was sitting on the donkey and they were walking back, the police chief and other government officials there, they tried to persuade Polycarp to go ahead and offer that pinch of incense to Caesar. They said, listen, all you got to do is say Caesar is Lord. You do that and you're off the hook. They pleaded with him to do it, to escape the dreadful martyrdom that he would surely face. But Polycarp was silent. And when they pressed him for an answer, he just finally gave a firm answer, no. The police chief got angry with Polycarp and he pushed him down and he fell onto the hard ground. Polycarp was bruised but resolute. He just got up and continued on his way and they came to the arena where Christians were gathered. They had horrible games at the arena in those days. and They had already begun in earnest. There was a large, bloodthirsty crowd gathered to see Christians tortured and killed. Now, there was one Christian there named Quintus, and he had very boldly proclaimed himself a follower of Jesus, and he said, I'm willing to be martyred for Jesus. But then when he stood in the gates awaiting to go into the arena, and when he saw the lions on the floor of the arena, he said, where's that statue of Caesar? I'll burn a pinch of incense. And he did. He fell away. It's one thing to talk real big, right? It's another thing to face the lions before you go into the arena. But there was another young man named Germanicus, and he didn't back down. He marched out, and he faced the lions. And friends, could you imagine what that spectacle would be like? A man just standing there, and a lion or two just overpowers him and devours him in front of a cheering, bloodthirsty mob. Ten other Christians gave their lives that day, but the mob was not satisfied. The mob would cry out, Away with the atheists who do not worship our gods. That's what they called Christians. They called Christians atheists because they only worshiped one god. What good is that, they thought. To them, they wanted more, and so they finally started chanting, Bring out Polycarp. And that chant went all around the arena, echoing out. So when Polycarp came out and brought his tired body into the arena, he stood before the government official and, and they, they tried one more time to get him to renounce Jesus. They didn't want to do this. But the proconsul told, crowd, told Polycarp, he said, listen, the, the crowd is shouting away with the atheists. Just agree with the crowd. That's all we want. You say it too. Away with the atheists. Come on, Polycarp. You know what Polycarp did? He he motioned and gestured all across the crowd, look, gesturing to the crowd, and he said, away with those atheists. Didn't win him any points. <laughs> the proconsul persisted. He said, take the oath and revile Christ, and I'll set you free. This is what Polycarp answered. It's a famous statement in church history. He said, for 86 years I've served Jesus. How dare I now revile my king? Proconsul passed his sentence. He simply said, Polycarp has confessed that he's a Christian. And the crowd went wild. They started shouting, let the lions loose. But there was a problem. They had already put away the lions that day. And so they were away in their cages. So then the crowd started demanding that Polycarp be burnt. And he remembered the dream. He said, it's not going to be the lions. It's just like the dream I had. 
And so he told his executioners, he said, It's well, I fear not the fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. He said, Why do you delay? Come on, do your will. So they arranged a great pile of wood. They set up a pole in the middle of it. They tied him to the wood. And as they were tying him to the wood, this is what Polycarp prayed. He said, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour that I may receive a portion in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. And after he prayed and gave thanks to God, they set the wood ablaze. Now, according to ancient church records, miraculously, the fire did not touch Polycarp. He was as if it was surrounded by a hedge keeping the fire from touching him. And he just stood there in the midst with the fire all around, but not burning him. Seeing that he would not burn, the executioner was in a furious rage. He grabbed a spear and he stabbed the old man with a long spear. And then the streams of blood gushed from him and spurted out, extinguishing into the fire. And then he burnt up. Friends, that's... That's martyrdom. That's a courageous stand for Jesus Christ. You know, it's funny with us. Sometimes, and I'll include myself in this, sometimes we think having a headache is enduring a great cross for Jesus Christ. It makes you have a different perspective on things, doesn't it? Look at the end of verse 11 here, promise of reward. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This is a promise for overcomers. The the promise is those who overcome the threat of persecution and the presence of persecution. And he says, you won't be hurt by the second death. That's the lake of fire. Though Satan attacked and threatened their life, Jesus promises, I have conquered death for you. It won't touch you. All right, let's take a look now at the letter to the church at Pergamos. I'll read again the whole letter, verses 12 through 17, and then we'll go apart and look at it. Section by section. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Pergamos. To the angel at the church of Pergamos write, Now, Pergamos was the political capital of this area, the Roman province of Asia the Less. When John wrote, Pergamos had been the capital city of the region for more than 300 years. It was also a noted center for culture and education, and it was an extremely religious city. It had temples to the Greek and Roman gods Dionysus, Athena, Demeter, and Zeus. It also had three different temples dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. Pergamos, however, was most famous as a center for the worship of a deity known as Asclepios. Asclepios was a deity of the ancient world represented by a serpent. Have you ever seen the physician's symbol of a pole with a serpent wrapped around it? That is the ancient symbol of Asclepios. You say, why would doctors... Uh, have this you know, symbol of a snake wrapped around a, uh, a pole. Why would they take the symbol of Asclepios? Well, because Asclepios was a god of healing and knowledge. There was a famous medical school at his temple in Pergamos. And because of the famous temple to the Roman god of healing, sick and diseased people from all over the Roman Empire flocked to Pergamos for relief. And when people came to Pergamos to to try to find healing, you know what they did? They spent the night in the temple. And there you were in the temple, and it was completely dark. And then the priests would let out the snakes, tame snakes. But there you are in total darkness on a cold marble floor. 
And it was said that if a snake came against you, it would have healing power. The touch of the snake was held to be the touch of God himself. The touch was held to bring health and healing. Jesus describes himself to this church at Pergamos. Look at it there, verse 12. These things, says he, as the sharp two-edged sword. Now, if Jesus is going to introduce himself to you, would you rather have him introduce himself to you as these things as the first and the last who was dead and who came to life? Or I'm the guy with the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus shows this two-edged sword to the Christians in Pergamos. Friends, they're going to feel the sharp edges of it before this letter is over. Look at what Jesus knows about this church at Pergamos. Verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus says, I know your works. Now, Jesus has said this to each church. It it, it is true of each one of us. He knows our works. Might I say, he knows your works tonight, even if there's not much to know, but he knows them. He also knows where you are. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, what does it mean that in Pergamos, Satan's throne existed or was there? What made it such a stronghold of satanic power? Well, there's a lot of different opinions. Some people believe it was a center of pagan religion, or because it was a center of pagan religion, especially this god Asclepios. By the way, Asclepios had a title. Just like we say Jesus Christ, Jesus is his name, Christ is his title. In the same way, they had a phrase for the god Asclepios, and they called him Asclepios Soter, which means Asclepios Savior. You can see how that would be offensive to Christians. A serpent who's a savior. Some people believe that it was because the Pergamos had a huge throne-like altar at the temple of Zeus that was dedicated to Zeus. Some people believe it was because Pergamos was a center for the ancient Babylonian priesthood, but that's tough to prove conclusively. Other people believe it was because it was the capital city of the region which demanded worship of the Roman government. Whatever the specific matter was, look at it there. He says, verse 13, You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Despite the fact that they lived in such a difficult city, the Christians of Pergamos held fast to their faith in Jesus, and they did not deny his faith. That's beautiful. It's remarkable. Matter of fact, there was one remarkable man among them named Antipas. It says, Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you. One specific man among the Christians of Pergamos received a precious title. Jesus says, you are a faithful martyr. Now, you want to know what's so precious about that? Keep your finger there. Go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus is introduced as Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. That word for witness is the same ancient Greek word for the word for martyr. Witness and martyr are the same ancient Greek word. Isn't that interesting? Matter of fact, the Greek language went through quite an evolution. You have the most ancient form of the Greek language known as classical Greek. That's what the great works such as uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey were written in. Classical Greek. It, It would be analogous to Elizabethan English. You know, if some fella came in here speaking real Elizabethan English, you'd say, what? What are you talking about? You could understand it, but it would take you a long time. Then as the years progressed, Greek became more of a common language. And the specific variation of Greek spoken in the days of the New Testament that the New Testament was written in, it was called Koine Greek, which basically means common Greek. Now, in classical Greek, this ancient word martis simply means witness. It means someone who said, it's true and I know it. That's what a martis was. It wasn't until the New Testament that that word martis meant somebody who said, it's true, I know it, and I'll die for it. That was the addition Christianity made to it. And so when Jesus says that he's the faithful witness, and then when he calls Antipas the faithful martyr, wouldn't you love Jesus to call you with the same title he calls himself? Wouldn't you love Jesus to say, this person is like me? You could call them the same title you call me. And I love this man, Antipas. 
He lived where Satan's throne was, yet he stood against the attacks and all the evil around him. He fulfilled the meaning of his name. Do you know what Antipas means? It means against all. Beautiful, beautiful title. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Uh Uh-oh. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. I have a few things against you, Jesus says. The, The Christians in Pergamos were rightly praised for holding fast to the name of Jesus and for keeping the faith. At the same time, their difficult environment did not excuse the few things Jesus had against them. Don't we want to do that oftentimes? We want to excuse ourselves because of a difficult environment. Well, you know, I know I'm in sin, but look at how tough it is over here. I've got an excuse. As if God is, you know, handing out free passes for sin or something if you're in a tough situation. No, Jesus says, I know you're in a tough place. I know you're working out, but but still, I need to call you on this, Jesus says. And what is it? He says, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, what was the doctrine of Balaam? You remember Balaam, don't you? He's the fellow who carried on the conversation with the donkey. Numbers chapter 22 through 24, and then later on in Numbers chapter 31. But essentially, the sin of Balaam wasn't that he talked to a donkey. No, that wasn't it at all. It was that Balaam combined the sins of sexual immorality and idolatry, and what's worse, for pay. To put it bluntly, he counseled the king of Moab named Balak to bring a curse upon Israel by leading the men of Israel into sexual immorality and idolatry. Therefore, when Balaam counseled Balak, it says there that he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. The stumbling block was connected with idolatry and connected with sexual immorality. And if the church in Pergamos had those who held the doctrine of Balaam, it shows they had tendencies both towards idolatry and immorality. And sexual immorality marked the whole culture of the ancient Roman Empire. It was simply taken for granted. And the person who lived by biblical standards of purity was considered strange. The Roman statesman Cicero said something like this. He says, if there's anyone out there who thinks that young men should not be allowed the love of many women then he's extremely severe. I'm not able to deny the principle that he stands on, but he contradicts not only with the freedom that our age allows, but also with the customs and the allowances of our ancestors. When indeed was this not done? When did anyone find fault with it? When was such permission denied? When was it that, this, that what, is not, what is now allowed was not allowed? In other words, he's saying, look, we've always been this way. We've always been sexually immoral, and that's how we are now. Who can say anything against it? To keep from sexual immorality in that culture, you really had to swim against the current. So they had them, they had the people who held the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which probably was a a proud authority and hierarchical separatism. The name Nicolaos literally means to conquer over the people. And it had idea, a, a superiority, a separation, all combined with the sexual immorality and the uh, idolatry. He says, which things I hate. Now, I want you to notice something here in verse 14. He says, look at it carefully. He says, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. And then he says, in verse 15, thus you have those who hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans. He's not saying that the whole church does it. No. He's saying, you have some in the church who do it, and you're not correcting them. You're not stopping them. You're not telling them, stop, set it right. Maybe they did it under a misguided idea of what tolerance or love was all about. But Satan couldn't accomplish it by the persecution with Smyrna. So he says, listen, I've tried violence and it didn't work. Now I'll use alliance and I'll try to ally myself. Yes, the Christians in Pergamos lived in a difficult environment, but friends, a difficult environment never justifies compromise. It's easy for a church in that kind of difficulty to say, well, listen, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how you live. Come on in and join us. We need all the help we can get. But it never justifies it. So what does Jesus want the church at Pergamos to do? Look at verse 16. 
Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The simple word repent kind of stands out, doesn't it? You understand something? Of the seven churches that Jesus wrote to, five of them are commanded to repent. Now, do you think that repentance is something just saved for sinners who need to come to Jesus for the first time? Friends, repentance is something that should fill our Christian life. We should always be turning in the direction of the Lord, turning to Him, having Him change our heart, change our minds. Repent is a command that applies to Christians, not only to those who first come to Jesus. When you think your day for repenting before God is over, you're in a world of hurt. Because what's the penalty if you don't? Look at it here, verse 16. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Unless they did repent, that the Christians of Pergamos would face the Jesus who had the two-edged sword. Judgment would begin at the house of God, and he would confront them with his word. That's the sword of his mouth. Finally, he says here in verse 16, excuse me, verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, the danger of false teaching and immoral conduct still faces the church today. But more so is the danger of allowing false teaching and immorality, as was the promise with the Christians in Pergamos. Look at it, the final section here, the promise of a reward. Verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the white stone a new name, written which no one knows except him who receives it. Friends, God wants us to overcome the spirit of accommodation to false teaching and to false living, and he wants us to receive hidden manna. That's God's perfect provision, the true bread from heaven. God says, I'll give you something better. Oh, that God would persuade us of that. When you leave the wrong and pursue the right, God gives you something better. It seems obvious, right? I mean, we can all nod or we can all agree. But at the time of temptation, it seems very far away, doesn't it? I mean, God burn it in our soul. Obedience is the better way. Hidden manna is better than anything that the Lord has, to, anything that the world, I should say, has to give us, right? What the Lord can give, the, the hidden manna, the beauty, the sustenance of that, so much better, so much more satisfying. That's not all. If you look at verse 17 too, it also says, and I will give him a white stone. This drives the commentators wild. Because white stones were used for a lot of different things in the ancient world. Let me throw out to you a few of the best ideas here. and They may all be true. The Lord may have picked a figure that was deliberately broad so that a lot of associations could be attached to it. First of all, in some Roman courts... When a person was on trial, if he was acquitted, they would give him a white stone. If he was found guilty, they would give him a black stone. And so in that beautiful picture, here, I'll give you a white stone. You're acquitted. You persevere. You be one of my overcomers. You stay faithful. Here, here's a white stone for you. Now, in other times, it seems that the white stone could be a ticket to a banquet, it would be like an invitation that would be passed out and a name would be put on it. And you would come and you'd get this white stone, the invitation, your name on it, and you'd go to the big party. And when you went in through the door, you had to show the white stone. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Jesus says, come, come to my messianic banquet. Come to the table of the Lord. Come, come. Here's your white stone. I'll give it to you. You have your ticket in and your name's on it. Other times, people thought that the white stone represented a badge of friendship. And it would be something that would be exchanged between close friends. If we were close friends, you know, I'd give you a stone and you'd give me a stone and our names would be upon it. Maybe even secret names, pet names that we had one for another to show our love, to show our devotion for one another. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Jesus saying here, here's a symbol of the friendship and here's a name. Nobody else knows, it's just you and I. It shows the intimacy of our relationship. It shows how close that we are. Friends, isn't that a beautiful thing? The idea associated with God having a new name for you in heaven is simply the assurance of the, it gives of our heavenly destination. God has a white stone in heaven waiting for you with your name on it. That's your reservation. I don't know, maybe when we get to heaven, 
We wake up and we look around us and we're more awake, more alive than ever. We'll look down and we'll see in our hand a white stone that will have our name on it. I don't know what we'll do with it. No, we'll pick it up, put it in our pocket, wear it around our neck as a name tag. Of course, nobody will know what your name is, right? Because it's known only to you. Look at it there in verse 17. No one knows except him who receives it. So you'll walk around heaven with this badge on and people look at him and say, what's that name? Nobody will know. You'll tell them. Maybe you'll tell them. I don't know. We could speculate endlessly on this, couldn't we? Friends, you see how comforting this is? Don't you want to know that there's a place in heaven for you? Don't you want to know that, that, that your place is reserved there? And not reserved in the sense of, oh, great, I got a reservation. I can live any way I want, and I'll just, who cares? I got a reservation. I'll just go out and do whatever I want now. No. No, it says, I've got that reservation there. I'm going to do everything I can to fulfill it. How is it when you make the reservation at the fancy restaurant? You make it there for a nice romantic dinner at 8 o'clock. So do you say, hey, I don't care. I got the reservation. I'll show up at 8.30. Doesn't matter. I got the reservation made. What's going to happen? You're going to get there and go to the end of the line. No, having the reservation, in fact, makes you more diligent to be there right on time. That's how it should be for us, knowing that we have a reservation in heaven. Friends, what's the Lord looking at you and saying, put this away, get rid of this. It's getting in the way of that reservation that you have. Let's pray and ask that the Lord of Paris to, to take that white stone and read that name written on it. That is our prayer, Lord. That you would do this work in our lives, that you'd prepare us, Lord, to fulfill that reservation, that, that booking that you have for us in heaven. Lord, we want that friendship, that closeness of relationship that the white stone and the name written on it mean. We ask, Lord, that you'd prepare our hearts and strengthen us for that day, for that time. We need it, Lord. We want it so badly. God, we ask that you do a transforming work in our lives. Bring us to that place and mold us in that way. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.